I'm Lisa Stone, and you are listening to Season 8 of Parenting Aces. Welcome to Season 8 of the Parenting Aces podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Stone, and I'm so happy to have you back. This week's episode was inspired by an email I got from one of you guys asking about periodization and how to use it. And I realized I didn't really have any resources available to y'all on the Parenting Aces website. Hadn't really addressed this topic in detail on the podcast. So I reached out to several people that I know in the field and realized that Mark Kovacs was the perfect person to have on the podcast to discuss the whole topic of periodization, how to use it, what it means. And so I'm just thrilled to be able to bring Mark Kovacs to you guys this week. Before we jump into that conversation, though, I want to just remind you guys that Parenting Aces is donor supported. We have a donate button on the top right of every page on parentingaces.com. So if you find our content useful, we so appreciate every donation, even $1 helps. So thank you to those who have donated in the past and uh, hope to continue to provide valuable information and content to all of you through parentingaces.com and the podcast. So now let me take you back to Mark Kovacs. We had a phenomenal conversation. I want to just remind you that links to the websites that Mark mentions will be available in the show notes at parentingaces.com. So be sure to take a look there. And another quick shout out to my son, Morgan Stone, for our intro and outro music. His music career is doing great. He recently released a song on an actual music label, which was very, very exciting. So if you're interested, check out the link in the show notes to Morgan's website. All right, now sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode with Mark Kovacs. Mark Kovacs, I'm so excited to have you back on the podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks, Lisa. I know it's been a while, but always excited to be back with you. Well, I you are my go-to guy when it comes to fitness and research and preparation for tennis, and you just seem to have all the answers. So before we dive into the meat of this week's discussion, I wanted to give you an opportunity to let our audience know about your background in the sport of tennis and what you are currently involved in. Sure. So yeah, no, I grew up like a lot of players um, playing as a junior, uh, grew up in Australia, played the uh, national circuit in Australia, then played a lot of the ITF junior tournaments. Uh, I played doubles with Andy Roddick at the Junior U.S. Open, so played quite a, a few of the Junior Slams, and then came to college and played at Auburn. I uh, was fortunate to have a decent doubles partner there. We won the NCAA title. I uh, was an All-American and National Doubles Team of the Year, then played professionally for a short period and had some shoulder problems during college, uh, and that was uh, really what got me into this whole field of sports science injury prevention, fitness training, making sure we can do a better job of taking care of tennis athletes. And sort of when I got started in this field, there really wasn't too many people interested or involved in it. Uh, and over the last 20 years, it's really changed, which has been great. A lot more information, a lot more knowledge, 
Uh, and from there, I was a strength coach, uh, worked with a lot of sports, um, then went back into research, wanted to understand the questions of why, how can we do, understand what we're doing better, and then worked with the USDA for six years and had a great opportunity to be part of the player development program there, heading up the sports science, uh, as well as the coaching education department, uh, working with just about every American player uh, out there from the 10-year-olds all the way to uh, the top 10 in the world. So you really get a good spectrum of the level, the training, the environment. Uh, after that, worked with Gatorade, directed the Gatorade Sports Science Institute for a few years, uh, which was great. Worked a lot in soccer, in the NBA, in the NFL. Uh, and then over the last five years, uh, I've got our own institute in Atlanta, where we really combine all the passions of uh, testing athletes, high-level assessments, uh, doing research with uh, technology companies, uh, working on prototypes, trying to understand the body better, understand training better, uh, and really trying to combine all these areas to provide the athletes, teams, leagues, federations, a better understanding of how we can do a better job of providing services that are evidence-based uh, as well as practically applicable. And that's a real uh, goal of mine is to make sure that we don't just rely on evidence without the practicality, and then we don't just make decisions on opinion without any fact. Right. And you developed an actual training and certification for, for fitness professionals that want to focus on tennis. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so the International Tennis Performance Association has been around now for a little over seven years, and it was really a group of us that got together and said there really isn't an avenue for strength coaches, athletic trainers, physical therapists, tennis coaches that are really interested in the fitness side of tennis to go through a evidence-based, well-researched curriculum and you know really focuses on the areas most important to understanding the tennis athlete testing the tennis athlete, training them, and also rehabbing them. And we're really excited about the growth of the association. There's members in over 40 countries. We've placed uh, over 500 people in jobs over the time period at all levels of the game. Uh, so it's really been a passion project of mine. And I thank all the folks that have been involved from day one, helping with curriculum development, you know, uh, working on the conferences that we do, providing the education around the world in different formats, both online and in person. And, you know, it's just been great to see a lot of these folks that have started as sort of entry-level people in the industry when they got into it are now leading experts. And that's really uh, is enjoyable for me to see all these folks that have grown and developed and become real leaders in, in their field. Yeah, it's fantastic. And and to my listeners, we'll have a link to the ITPA website in the show notes at parentingaces.com. So make sure you check that out. It's a fabulous organization. And kudos to you, Mark, and your team for really helping fitness professionals gain a deeper understanding of what sets the tennis athlete apart and their specific needs. I mean, I think that was, you know, terribly um, lacking in our sport. Yeah, no, and, it, and it's a challenging sport. Every sport has its unique aspects, but tennis, predominantly due to the schedule, makes it one of the hardest sports to train and, and really schedule appropriately for every athlete. Every athlete is very unique. And it's really important that we take that into consideration when we're training them and working with them. 
Yeah, and that leads us right into what I wanted to discuss this week, which is the topic of periodization. And this podcast episode came about because I got an email from one of you listeners who said that periodization is a concept that she's been trying to wrap her head around with a crazy schedule. And she asked me for a recommendation of books or podcasts on the topic, but really how to implement periodization while at the same time balancing tournaments, training, school, and life in general. She said she's really not sure what it is, how to do it, and how to create peak performance for you know the, the right time. So I think that's what we should talk about today. And Mark, let you share your expertise on this subject and help the parents and the junior coaches out there understand what periodization is and then how to use it. So it's a really, really important question. And periodization simply is planning. Um, so if we want to simplify it language-wise, it's just having a strong quality plan about how you're going to accomplish your goals. And usually you have your end in mind and you work backwards. So for most players, junior players, uh, a lot of it's development focused. You need to really do a good job of what we call a needs analysis and understanding where the strengths are in the athlete, where the opportunities are, what their game style is, what their long-term game style should be, what they're trying to work on in the four broad areas of technical, tactical, physical, and mental. And if you map that out and do a good needs analysis, planning becomes a lot easier. It's not just about what tournaments to play. That's a very small part of periodization, and too many people get hung up on what tournaments to play. And the tournament piece comes in a little bit later on because your objective is what are we trying to work on and improve in those four broad areas of technical, tactical, physical, and mental. So that's really step one is understand the athlete, the athlete's goals, what we're trying to accomplish, put that down on paper, doesn't have to be long. A one page can be plenty. We just want it in, in a space that we can refer to and use as our guide. Uh, and then based on that, then we work backwards from there. So if we're goal is to add, you know, seven miles to the serve, we want to get them faster in their lateral movement to the back end. We want to make sure that they learn how to hit a effective slice. Uh, we want to make sure that their in-between point routine is more standardized and more consistent. We want to make sure that you know their vertical jump improves by three inches over the next year. That's a very simple goals-based approach to putting it down on paper on all those different areas. And then from there, then we have to then work back and figure out how we're going to accomplish that. And generally speaking, when you plan, you want periods of time when you're more focused on certain areas and then other periods of time when you're less focused on those areas and more focused on others. So that's the general premise behind it. Uh, and then we can get into the specifics of, okay, how do we actually go about mapping it out, drawing it up, making sure that it's practical and easy to implement as well. Right. And I do want to dive into that, but I also want to talk about why we need to use periodization. What is its purpose and what can we hope to achieve when we implement it with our junior players? Yeah, I mean, there's two big reasons. One is you want to speed development. That's on the performance side. That's the number one reason we implement it. If we periodize effectively, the athlete that periodizes improves faster, better, 
than someone that doesn't because they're doing pretty much everything at the right time with the right progression and they're not really sort of winging it a little bit. Uh, so that's the performance aspect of it. The second piece is the injury prevention burnout aspect because if you're always ramping up and doing more and more and more, at some point your body shuts down and says we've gone too far. And what we want to do from a periodization standpoint is ramp up appropriately, then use signs and uh, signals that the body's giving us to say, hey, we're getting pretty close to the edge here. Now it's time to pull back a little bit. And there's ways that we do that. And monitoring of the athlete is a big part of periodization. We, not, we have to make sure we're reading the signals and reading the dials on the athlete. So if their vertical jump is decreasing, if we're using that as our daily monitoring to see how are they, how are they performing, or if we're monitoring their surf speed and their surf speed starts to dip, these are symptoms of fatigue, very simple symptoms of fatigue that tells us, hey, the athlete's getting tired. Then it's our knowledge we have to then implement to be like, is that planned? Planned fatigue is important, that we need periods of planned fatigue for the body to adapt and improve. But we don't want that to go on for more than a few days or at max a week. If it gets longer than that, then we start getting into that sort of risk profile, which we, we don't want to be in. So it's really, really important to be able to monitor the athlete, know the signs and symptoms that you're looking for, and then strategically pull back. And you will plan your periodized year with these uh, ups and downs in volume based on training weeks versus competition. But then you'll also make adjustments every week based on what the signs and symptoms are that you're seeing with your athletes. Right. And so when you get into these periods of fatigue, is that a signal to, to, to rest completely or is it a sign of something else? Great question. And depending on the level that you're playing, this is where it, it differs and you have to be a little careful because if you're a junior player and you're you know, playing three or four times a week, you know, a significant sign of fatigue and pain even, that's a sign you should definitely pull back and rest a little bit. If you're trying to play at a very high collegiate level or professional level, signs of fatigue are part of training. I mean, that's what we're doing. We're, we're trying to push through barriers. We're trying to adapt, but we don't want to get injured. So we have to make sure that we're not pulling back too frequently because one of the big problems with a lot of people is uh, they, they don't always understand that rest by itself is actually a predictor of injury. And a lot of people get confused by that. But if you over rest and then still want to compete, your body hasn't developed what's called resiliency. You haven't developed the training to handle the demands of competition. So if you're resting a lot, but still playing tournaments and trying to compete, that actually increases your risk of injury because you haven't prepared your body for the demands of competition. Whereas if you go too far on the other spectrum and you're training 30 hours a week at a very high intensity, not giving your body any time off to recover and adapt, you're also setting yourself up for injury because you're overtraining and you're putting yourself at the brink too often. So there's a sweet spot that we want to find. It's sort of right in the middle of those two where you're getting enough training you're pushing the body enough that it's adapting, it's getting stronger, it's getting faster, it's getting more resilient, it's able to handle the volume. But you're also strategically putting in times where the body can recover and adapt. 
That could be a few days at a time when they get recovery time. That could be you know, modifying your sessions for a week. We call those download or unload weeks where it's not complete rest, but if you're doing, let's just use time as a, as a metric, which is not a great metric, but let's use it for sake of discussion. If you're normally training 20 hours a week, your download week may be 10 hours that week. So you're still training, but you've cut your volume in half. So it's, it's important to understand those two areas when it comes to too little is going to cause problems and doing too much is going to cause problems. Right. And, you know, as you're talking, I'm, I'm thinking about this and wondering who is responsible for finding that sweet spot and noticing when the sweet spot has been missed is the responsibility the players, the parent, the coach, a combination? How does that work? Really good question. And depending on the skill set, it, it could be one of those folks you mentioned. It could be all of those combined. The best scenarios are combined. So we, we co- always talk about the athlete is at the center of the team, but there's always a team around them. So you have the parent, the coach, the trainer, the therapist, whoever's involved in the team is going to have input. They're going to see the athlete. They've got a certain you know, perspective that they look at the athlete from that you want those different perspectives. But at the end of the day, there's always someone in charge or veto power. And the veto power is typically the coach or the parent. It's usually one of both of those. Um, yeah, and that's going to be important to determine. The parent many times has the best understanding of, of the player from a environmental standpoint, what else is going on, what are the signs and symptoms they see outside of the court. The coach, though, has you by far the best symptoms on the court. They can read the athlete on court. Are they slowing down? Are they not hitting the balls effectively? Are they getting more frustrated on court mentally? Those things. So role responsibility is pretty important, and we know that a lot of people struggle with this. Coaches struggle with parents. Parents struggle with coaches. There's a lot of headbutting many times about differences of opinion. So early on in the relationship, it's important to have those discussions that we do have to have some role clarity because I've worked on a lot of teams where we've had challenges and that's normal. A little friction is not a bad thing either because people care. They want the best results, but they just think they get there in slightly different ways. But you have to have a respect among the, the folks involved and you also have to you know, let the experts do their job. The parent's truly the expert in the child and the athlete in pretty much everything outside of the tennis court. And the coach is the expert in everything inside the tennis court. So their expertise needs to be respected and they need to work together to evaluate each athlete and the symptoms appropriately. How important is it for the athlete, him or herself, to learn to recognize when they've exceeded what their body or their brain is capable of handling? That's a great question, and that's really, really very, very difficult. Reason being is until you've done something, you don't think you can do it. So pushing through barriers is part of what being an elite performer is and understanding that very rarely are you even close to your max. I mean, we do physiological testing in the lab all the time where we take someone to where they feel they can't go anymore and we show them on the screen, hey, you've got a lot left in the tank. We know physiologically you're not maxed out. You think you are because you've never gone past this point before, 
But physiologically, you've got 10% more, 20% more. The challenge is if you're just winging that and not having any data to support your decisions, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to push someone too far, things like that. So a lot of it has to do with what are we talking about. Now, hitting 500 serves and then saying you can do another 100, that may be overdoing it. It's kind of common sense concepts there. You know, but saying someone who is you know, doing a movement and they're just not getting it and you're like, hey, we've got to do 30 more until we get it and they're frustrated, they don't want to do it, that may be more of a mental frustration than a physical. So we have to be real clear and help the athlete understand that, understand the difference between pain and injury is an important discussion as well. General pain, you know, happens every day on a good training environment. I mean, the athlete feels it, they're uncomfortable, it's not, it's not fun many times, but they know that pushing through that makes them better, and that's what they need to do if they want to get to the next level. Um, but, but injury is truly a different scenario, and injury is not something we ever want to push through. And we have to help the athlete understand the difference there because there's a big difference, and the athlete needs to be comfortable in verbalizing it as well. The challenge for many athletes, unfortunately, though, is many of them are frustrated many times for a number of reasons. Either they're not necessarily playing for the right reason, they're playing for other people or because they've always played and they think that's the only thing they can continue to do. So they're not fully committed to pushing the limits. And for those athletes, we don't want to push them there. There's nothing good that comes out of that if we're pushing an athlete from an external source. And coaches and parents are external sources. The athletes, we want to create the environment where they want to self-motivate and self-push and ask for more. If we're overly pushing, that's a problem in the, in the short run because you can get potential problems with injury and overtraining. But in the long run, it can create burnout and, and some of those other issues that uh, are quite concerning. And we see that every year, unfortunately, at, the, at all levels of the game. Sure. And, you know, you're talking about the difference between pain and injury. I, when I was going through training as a fitness instructor, which was a really long time ago, um, we were taught that pain is an indicator of injury. But it sounds like that mindset has changed, that pain and injury are now considered as separate entities that could overlap, but don't necessarily overlap. Yeah, no, exactly. So pain, it's, it's the definition of pain. It's how are you defining pain? And, you know, if someone runs a 400 meter on a track and they get very high lactate levels, the last 100 meters, they feel terrible. There's a lot of pain there. There's pain in their face. There's pain in their legs. Their heart's pumping really hard. It's super uncomfortable. It's one of the worst feelings an athlete can go through. Yet there's no real risk of injury in that environment if you do that one time and you're reasonably well trained. So they need to understand that that environment is something you just got to fight through. It. You got to struggle through it. That's what makes you better. That's what is breaking barriers. But if you get, let's say, a shooting shooting pain down your leg, if you get, you know, a, a numbness, if you feel like, hey, my calf's tearing, that's a different scenario, and that's injury and that is not something you push through so that's sort of the clarification of what we're talking about um that you have to be willing to understand that difference Mm -hmm. okay i just wanted to make sure we point that out because you know i think a lot of times um 
athletes themselves will push through pain and oftentimes over push and, and it results in injury or oftentimes, you know, we parents will see a pained look on our child's face and say, okay, that's it. You've got to back off. And in reality, they're on that threshold of creating a new limit for themselves. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, you know, and that's, that's the real challenge with this because it's a fine line, you know, making adaptations is what, why we train. That's the reason we train, but adaptations don't occur during training. They occur during recovery. So we have to create the environment during training to stimulate the right potential adaptations. But from a physiological standpoint, when we train, we break things down. It, you, you have these catabolic reactions, which is breakdown. And then after you stop training and start recovering, your goal is to get into an anabolic process or a growth phase as quick as possible. That's where recovery becomes so important from a nutrition standpoint, making sure we fuel up the body as, as, as effectively as possible. And then also we create the environment outside the tennis court or the gym that the athlete isn't overly stressed with academics, uh, family issues, things like that. And that's hard because a lot of the time, many people don't take into account family stresses, environmental stresses, friend stresses, and the academic side of things. And they all take away from an athlete's ability to effectively recover. Interesting. Well, we promised that we would delve deeper into the different pieces of periodization. So let's do that. I don't want to run out of time with you. And um, I want to make sure that we give the listeners as much information as we possibly can around this very, very complicated process. So let's let's dig into the details. Yeah. So in general, you, you want to break out your year into a few stages or phases and everyone's a bit different. So it's not a one size fits all model because everyone plays a different tournament schedule. They have different philosophies on how much they want to train, how much recovery time they want. Are they a multi-sport athlete or are they a single sport athlete? You periodize differently based on those. So is there a such thing as multi-sport athletes anymore? Do we still have those people? <laughs> yeah, no, no. There's there's plenty of them out there. I've got I've got a you know great college player, a high school athlete who's going to a uh, an SEC school next year and plays high school basketball and is doing great. So you know it's it, they're there and there's no real risk you know uh, except for the rolled ankle or something like that. But from a standpoint of general development, it's it's important to, to play multiple sports for an overall development. And again, it just has a lot to do with what level are we talking about that you want to get to. If you want to get to a professional level, you're going to have to prioritize tennis at some point. The question is when? Is it eight? Is it 16? Some people, you know, do it a little too early and that can significantly impact the physical development of the athletes. So, it's not necessarily single sport versus multi-sport discussion always. It's more about are they physically getting all the skills that they need to be a great athlete. There's plenty of individuals that were single sport athletes from eight years old that were great athletes because they had great coaches and great parents that taught them and, and put them in situations to develop all their physical skills. Then you have single sport athletes that aren't great athletes. They're great tennis players. They hit a great tennis ball but they're pretty limited in their physical capabilities because they just hit tennis balls with very little emphasis on anything else. And that shows up over time. 
You usually get great results with single sport athletes when they're young, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Reason being is they hit two, three times as many tennis balls as a multi-sport athlete would because of the time. So they're advanced. Their tennis age is advanced. Their skills on the tennis court are advanced, but they may not get the physical aspects that they need. And then a lot of those multi-sport athletes are able to sort of jump them later on. So we have to be smart about how we do it. And I'm not a big fan of the debate of everyone should only be multi-sport and you should never do single sport. If, if a kid loves tennis and that's all they want to do, don't force them to do something else, but just make sure that their environment's created, that they're not missing any of the physical development skills that, that they may need. And that's the important differentiator there. Love that. Okay. Sorry I interrupted your train of thought. No, no. It's a, it's a great discussion and it's an important one because I think people simplify that discussion way too much. Like single sport's bad, multi-sport's good. I'm Lisa Stone, and you are listening to Season 8 of Parenting Aces. Welcome to Season 8 of the Parenting Aces podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Stone, and I'm so happy to have you back. This week's episode was inspired by an email I got from one of you guys asking about periodization and how to use it. And I realized I didn't really have any resources available to y'all on the Parenting Aces website. Hadn't really addressed this topic in detail on the podcast. So I reached out to several people that I know in the field and realized that Mark Kovacs was the perfect person to have on the podcast to discuss the whole topic of periodization, how to use it, what it means. And so I'm just thrilled to be able to bring Mark Kovacs to you guys this week. Before we jump into that conversation, though, I want to just remind you guys that Parenting Aces is donor supported. We have a donate button on the top right of every page on parentingaces.com. So if you find our content useful, we so appreciate every donation, even $1 helps. So thank you to those who have donated in the past and uh, hope to continue to provide valuable information and content to all of you through parentingaces.com and the podcast. So now let me take you back to Mark Kovacs. We had a phenomenal conversation. I want to just remind you that links to the websites that Mark mentions will be available in the show notes at parentingaces.com. So be sure to take a look there. And another quick shout out to my son, Morgan Stone, for our intro and outro music. His music career is doing great. He recently released a song on an actual music label, which was very, very exciting. So if you're interested, check out the link in the show notes to Morgan's website. All right, now sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode with Mark Kovacs. Mark Kovacs, I'm so excited to have you back on the podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks, Lisa. I know it's been a while, but always excited to be back with you. Well, I you are my go-to guy when it comes to fitness and research and 
preparation for tennis and you just seem to have all the answers. So before we dive into the meat of this week's discussion, I wanted to give you an opportunity to let our audience know about your background in the sport of tennis and what you are currently involved in. Sure. So yeah, no, I grew up like a lot of players um, playing as a junior, uh, played, grew up in Australia, played the uh, national circuit in Australia, then played a lot of the ITF junior tournaments. Uh, I played doubles with Andy Roddick at the junior US Open, so played quite a, a few of the junior slams, and then came to college and played at Auburn. I uh, was fortunate to have a decent doubles partner there. We won the NCAA title. I uh, was an All-American and National Doubles Team of the Year, then played professionally for a short period and had some shoulder problems during college. Uh, and that was uh, really what got me into this whole field of sports science, injury prevention, fitness training, making sure we can do a better job of taking care of tennis athletes. And sort of when I got started in this field, there really wasn't too many people interested or involved in it. Uh, and over the last 20 years, it's really changed, which has been great. A lot more information, a lot more knowledge. Uh, and from there, I was a strength coach, uh, worked with a lot of sports, um, then went back into research, wanted to understand the questions of why, how can we do understand what we're doing better, and then worked with the USDA for six years and had a great opportunity to be part of the player development program there, heading up the sports science, uh, as well as the coaching education departments. Uh, working with just about every American player uh, out there from the 10-year-olds all the way to uh, the top 10 in the world. So you really get a good spectrum of the level, the training, the environments. Uh, after that, worked with Gatorade, directed the Gatorade Sports Science Institute for a few years, uh, which was great. Worked a lot in soccer, in the NBA, in the NFL. Uh, and then over the last five years, uh, I've got our own institute in Atlanta, where we really combine all the passions of uh, testing athletes, high-level assessments, uh, doing research with uh, technology companies, uh, working on prototypes, trying to understand the body better, understand training better, uh, and really trying to combine all these areas to provide the athletes, teams, leagues, federations, a better understanding of how we can do a better job of providing services that are evidence-based uh, as well as practically applicable. And that's a real uh, goal of mine is to make sure that we don't just rely on evidence without the practicality, and then we don't just make decisions on opinion without any fact. Right. And you developed an actual training and certification for, for fitness professionals that want to focus on tennis. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So the International Tennis Performance Association has been around now for a little over seven years. And it was really a group of us that got together and said there really isn't an avenue for strength coaches, athletic trainers, physical therapists, tennis coaches that are really interested in the fitness side of tennis to go through a evidence-based, well-researched curriculum and you know really focuses on the areas most important to understanding the tennis athlete testing the tennis athlete, training them, and also rehabbing them. And we're really excited about the growth of the association. There's members in over 40 countries. We've placed uh, over 500 people in jobs over the time period at all levels of the game. Uh, so it's really been a passion project of mine. And I thank all the folks that have been involved from day one, helping with curriculum development, you know, uh, working on the conferences that we do, 
providing the education around the world in different formats, both online and in person. And, you know, it's just been great to see a lot of these folks that have started as sort of entry level people in the industry when they got into it are now leading experts. And that's really uh, is enjoyable for me to see all these folks that have grown and developed and become real leaders in, in their field. Yeah, it's fantastic. And and to my listeners, we'll have a link to the ITPA website in the show notes at parentingaces.com. So make sure you check that out. It's a fabulous organization and kudos to you, Mark, and your team for really helping fitness professionals gain a deeper understanding of what sets the tennis athlete apart and their specific needs. I mean, I think that was, you know, terribly um, lacking in our sport. Yeah, no, and it, and it's a challenging sport. Every sport has its unique aspects, but tennis, predominantly due to the schedule, makes it one of the hardest sports to train and and really schedule appropriately for every athlete. Every athlete is very unique. And it's really important that we take that into consideration when we're training them and working with them. Yeah. And that leads us right into what I wanted to discuss this week, which is the topic of periodization. And this podcast episode came about because I got an email from one of you listeners who said that, periodization is a concept that she's been trying to wrap her head around with a crazy schedule. And she asked me for a recommendation of books or podcasts on the topic, but really how to implement periodization while at the same time balancing tournaments, training, school, and life in general. She said she's really not sure what it is, how to do it, and how to create peak performance for you know the the right time. So I think that's what we should talk about today. And Mark, let you share your expertise on this subject and help the parents and the junior coaches out there understand what periodization is and then how to use it. So it's a really, really important question. And periodization simply is planning. Um, so if we want to simplify it, Language-wise, it's just having a strong quality plan about how you're going to accomplish your goals. And usually you have your end in mind and you work backwards. So for most players, junior players, uh, a lot of it's development focused. You need to really do a good job of what we call a needs analysis and understanding where the strengths are in the athlete, where the opportunities are, what their game style is, what their long-term game style should be what they're trying to work on in the four broad areas of technical, tactical, physical, and mental. And if you map that out and do a good needs analysis, planning becomes a lot easier. It's not just about what tournaments to play. That's a very small part of periodization, and too many people get hung up on what tournaments to play. And the tournament piece comes in a little bit later on because your objective is what are we trying to work on and improve in those four broad areas of technical, tactical, physical, and mental? So that's really step one is understand the athlete, the athlete's goals, what we're trying to accomplish, put that down on paper. It doesn't have to be long. One page can be plenty. We just want it in, in a space that we can refer to and use as our guide. Uh, and then based on that, then we work backwards from there. So if we're goal is to add, you know, seven miles to the serve, we want to get them faster in their lateral movement to the back end. We want to make sure that they learn how to hit a effective slice. 
we want to make sure that their in-between point routine is more standardized and more consistent. We want to make sure that you know their vertical jump improves by three inches over the next year. That's a very simple goals-based approach to putting it down on paper on all those different areas. And then from there, then we have to then work back and figure out how we're going to accomplish that. And generally speaking, when you plan, you want periods of time when you're more focused on certain areas and then other periods of time when you're less focused on those areas and more focused on others. So that's the general premise behind it. Uh, And then we can get into the specifics of, okay, how do we actually go about mapping it out, drawing it up, making sure that it's practical and easy to implement as well. Right. And I do want to dive into that, but I also want to talk about why we need to use periodization. What is its purpose and what can we hope to achieve when we implement it with our junior players? Yeah, I mean, there's two big reasons. One is you want to speed development. That's on the performance side. That's the number one reason we implement it. If we periodize effectively, the athlete that periodizes improves faster, better, than someone that doesn't because they're doing pretty much everything at the right time with the right progression and they're not really sort of winging it a little bit. Uh, so that's the performance aspect of it. The second piece is the injury prevention burnout aspect because if you're always ramping up and doing more and more and more, at some point your body shuts down and says we've gone too far. And what we want to do from a periodization standpoint is ramp up appropriately then use signs and uh, signals that the body's giving us to say, hey, we're getting pretty close to the edge here. Now it's time to pull back a little bit. And there's ways that we do that. And monitoring of the athlete is a big part of periodization. We, not, we have to make sure we're reading the signals and reading the dials on the athlete. So if their vertical jump is decreasing, if we're using that as our daily monitoring to see how are they, how are they performing, or if we're monitoring their surf speed and their surf speed starts to dip, these are symptoms of fatigue, very simple symptoms of fatigue that tells us, hey, the athlete's getting tired. Then it's our knowledge we have to then implement to be like, is that planned? Planned fatigue is important, that we need periods of planned fatigue for the body to adapt and improve. But we don't want that to go on for more than a few days or at max a week. If it gets longer than that, then we start getting into that sort of risk profile, which we we don't want to be in. So it's really, really important to be able to monitor the athlete, know the signs and symptoms that you're looking for, and then strategically pull back. And you will plan your periodized year with these uh, ups and downs in volume based on training weeks versus competition. But then you'll also make adjustments every week based on what the signs and symptoms are that you're seeing with your athletes. Right. And so when you get into these periods of fatigue, is that a signal to, to, to rest completely or is it a sign of something else? Great question. And depending on the level that you're playing, this is where it, it differs and you have to be a little careful. Because if you're a junior player and you're you know, playing three or four times a week, you know, a significant sign of fatigue and pain even, that's a sign you should definitely pull back and rest a little bit. If you're trying to play at a very high collegiate level or professional level, signs of fatigue are part of training. I mean, that's what we're doing. We're, we're trying to push through barriers. We're trying to adapt, but we don't want to get injured. 
So we have to make sure that we're not pulling back too frequently because one of the big problems with a lot of people is uh, they, they don't always understand that rest by itself is actually a predictor of injury. And a lot of people get confused by that. But if you over rest and then still want to compete, your body hasn't developed what's called resiliency. You haven't developed the training to handle the demands of competition. So if you're resting a lot, but still playing tournaments and trying to compete, that actually increases your risk of injury because you haven't prepared your body for the demands of competition. Whereas if you go too far on the other spectrum and you're training 30 hours a week at a very high intensity, not giving your body any time off to recover and adapt, you're also setting yourself up for injury because you're overtraining and you're putting yourself at the brink too often. So there's a sweet spot that we want to find. It's sort of right in the middle of those two where you're getting enough training, you're pushing the body enough that it's adapting, it's getting stronger, it's getting faster, it's getting more resilient, it's able to handle the volume, but you're also strategically putting in times where the body can recover and adapt. That could be a few days at a time when they get recovery time. That could be you're modifying your sessions for a week. We call those download or unload weeks where it's not complete rest. But if you're doing, let's just use time as a, as a metric, which is not a great metric, but let's use it for sake of discussion. If you're normally training 20 hours a week, your download week may be 10 hours that week. So you're still training, but you've cut your volume in half. So it's, it's important to understand those two areas when it comes to too little is going to cause problems and doing too much is going to cause problems. Right. And, you know, as you're talking, I'm, I'm thinking about this and wondering who is responsible for finding that sweet spot and noticing when the sweet spot has been missed is the responsibility the players, the parent, the coach, a combination? How does that work? Really good question. And depending on the skill set, it, it could be one of those folks you mentioned. It could be all of those combined. The best scenarios are combined. So we, we call, always talk about the athlete is at the center of the team, but there's always a team around them. So you have the parent, the coach, the trainer, the therapist, whoever's involved in the team is going to have input. They're going to see the athlete. They've got a certain you know, perspective that they look at the athlete from that you want those different perspectives. But at the end of the day, there's always someone in charge or veto power. And the veto power is typically the coach or the parent. It's usually one or both of those. Um, yeah, and that's going to be important to determine. The parent many times has the best understanding of, of the player from a environmental standpoint, what else is going on, what are the signs and symptoms they see outside of the court. The coach, though, has you by far the best symptoms on the court. They can read the athlete on court. Are they slowing down? Are they not hitting the balls effectively? Are they getting more frustrated on court mentally? Those things. So role responsibility is pretty important, and we know that a lot of people struggle with this. Coaches struggle with parents. Parents struggle with coaches. There's a lot of headbutting many times about differences of opinion. So early on in the relationship, it's important to have those discussions that we do have to have some role clarity because I've worked on a lot of teams where we've had challenges and that's normal. A little friction is not a bad thing either because people care. They want the best results, but they just think they get there in slightly different ways. 
but you have to have a respect among the, the folks involved. And you also have to you know, let the experts do their job. The parent's truly the expert in the child and the athlete in pretty much everything outside of the tennis court. And the coach is the expert in everything inside the tennis court. So their expertise needs to be respected and they need to work together to evaluate each athlete and the symptoms appropriately. How important is it for the athlete, him or herself, to learn to recognize when they've exceeded what their body or their brain is capable of handling? That's a great question, and that's really, really very, very difficult. Reason being is, until you've done something, you don't think you can do it. So pushing through barriers is part of what being an elite performer is, and understanding that very rarely are you even close to your max. I mean, we do physiological testing in the lab all the time where we take someone to where they feel they can't go anymore and we show them on the screen, hey, you've got a lot left in the tank. We know physiologically you're not maxed out. You think you are because you've never gone past this point before, but physiologically you've got 10% more, 20% more. The challenge is if you're just winging that and not having any data to support your decisions, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to push someone too far, things like that. So. A lot of it has to do with what are we talking about. Now, hitting 500 serves and then saying you can do another 100, that may be overdoing it. It's kind of common sense concepts there. You know, but saying someone who is you know, doing a movement and they're just not getting it and you're like, hey, we've got to do 30 more until we get it and they're frustrated, they don't want to do it, that may be more of a mental frustration than a physical. So we have to be real clear and help the athlete understand that understand the difference between pain and injury is an important discussion as well general pain you know happens every day on a good training environment i mean the athlete feels it they're uncomfortable it's not it's not fun many times but they know that pushing through that makes them better and that's what they need to do if they want to get to the next level um but but injury is truly a different scenario and injury is not something we ever want to push through. And we have to help the athlete understand the difference there because there's a big difference and the athlete needs to be comfortable in verbalizing it as well. The challenge for many athletes, unfortunately though, is many of them are frustrated many times for a number of reasons. Either they're not necessarily playing for the right reasons. They're playing for other people or because they've always played and they think that's the only thing they can continue to do. So they're not fully committed to pushing the limits. And for those athletes, we don't want to push them there. There's nothing good that comes out of that if we're pushing an athlete from an external source. And coaches and parents are external sources. The athletes, we want to create the environment where they want to self-motivate and self-push and ask for more if we're overly pushing, that's a problem in the, in the short run because you can get potential problems with injury and overtraining. But in the long run, it can create burnout and, and some of those other issues that uh, are quite concerning. And we see that every year, unfortunately, at, the, at all levels of the game. Sure. And, you know, you're talking about the difference between pain and injury. I when I was going through training as a fitness instructor, which was a really long time ago, um, we were taught that pain is an indicator of injury. But it sounds like that mindset has changed, that pain and injury are now considered as separate entities that could overlap, but don't necessarily overlap. 
Yeah, no, exactly. So pain, it's, it's the definition of pain. It's how are you defining pain? And, you know, if someone runs a 400 meter on a track and they get very high lactate levels, the last 100 meters, they feel terrible. There's a lot of pain there. There's pain in their face. There's pain in their legs. Their heart's pumping really hard. It's super uncomfortable. It's one of the worst feelings an athlete can go through. Yet there's no real risk of injury in that environment if you do that one time and you're reasonably well trained. So they need to understand that that environment is something you just got to fight through. You got to struggle through it. That's what makes you better. That's what is breaking barriers. But if you get, let's say, a shooting shooting pain down your leg, if you get, you know, a, a numbness, if you feel like, hey, my calf's tearing, that's a different scenario, and that's injury and that is not something you push through so that's sort of the clarification of what we're talking about um that you have to be willing to understand that difference Mm -hmm. okay i just wanted to make sure we point that out because you know i think a lot of times um athletes themselves will push through pain and oftentimes over push and and it results in injury or oftentimes you know, we parents will see a pained look on our child's face and say, okay, that's it. You've got to back off. And in reality, they're on that threshold of creating a new limit for themselves. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, you know, and that's, that's the real challenge with this because it's a fine line. You know, making adaptations is what, why we train. That's the reason we train. But adaptations don't occur during training. They occur during recovery. So we have to create the environment during training to stimulate the right potential adaptations. But from a physiological standpoint, when we train, we break things down. You you have these catabolic reactions, which is breakdown. And then after you stop training and start recovering, your goal is to get into an anabolic process or a growth phase as quick as possible. That's where recovery becomes so important from a nutrition standpoint making sure we fuel up the body as, as effectively as possible. And then also we create the environment outside the tennis court or the gym that the athlete isn't overly stressed with academics, uh, family issues, things like that. And that's hard because a lot of the time, many people don't take into account family stresses, environmental stresses, friend stresses, and the academic side of things. And they all take away from an athlete's ability to effectively recover. Interesting. Well, we promised that we would delve deeper into the different pieces of periodization. So let's do that. I don't want to run out of time with you. And um, I want to make sure that we give the listeners as much information as we possibly can around this very, very complicated process. So let's, let's dig into the details. Yeah, so in general, you, you want to break out your year into a few stages or phases. And everyone's a bit different, so it's not a one-size-fits-all model because everyone plays a different tournament schedule. They have different philosophies on how much they want to train, how much recovery time they want. Are they a multi-sport athlete or are they a single-sport athlete? You periodize differently based on those. So is there a such thing as multi-sport athletes anymore? Do we still have those people? <laughs> yeah, no, no. There's there's plenty of them out there. I've got I've got a you know great college player, a high school athlete who's going to a uh, an SEC school next year and plays high school basketball and is doing great. So you know it's it, they're there and there's no real risk 
you know, uh, except for the rolled ankle or something like that. But from a standpoint of general development, it's it's important to to play multiple sports for an overall development. And again, it just has a lot to do with what level are we talking about that you want to get to. If you want to get to a professional level, you're going to have to prioritize tennis at some point. The question is when? Is it eight? Is it 16? Some people, you know, do it a little too early and that can significantly impact the physical development of the athletes. So it's not necessarily single sport versus multi-sport discussion always. It's more about are they physically getting all the skills that they need to be a great athlete? There's plenty of individuals that were single sport athletes from eight years old that were great athletes because they had great coaches and great parents that taught them and, and put them in situations to develop all their physical skills. Then you have single sport athletes that aren't great athletes. They're great tennis players. They hit a great tennis ball, but they're pretty limited in their physical capabilities because they just hit tennis balls with very little emphasis on anything else. And that shows up over time. You usually get great results with single sport athletes when they're young, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Reason being is they hit two, three times as many tennis balls as a multi-sport athlete would because of the time. So they're advanced, their tennis age is advanced, their skills on the tennis court are advanced, but they may not get the physical aspects that they need. And then a lot of those multi-sport athletes are able to sort of jump them later on. So we have to be smart about how we do it. And I'm not a big fan of the debate of everyone should only be multi-sport and you should never do single sport. If, if a kid loves tennis and that's all they want to do, don't force them to do something else, but just make sure that their environment's created, that they're not missing any of the physical development skills that, that they may need. And that's the important differentiator there. Love that. Okay. Sorry I interrupted your train of thought. No, no. It's a, it's a great discussion and it's an important one because I think people simplify that discussion way too much. Like single sport's bad, multi-sport's good. You can have terrible athletes that play five sports. I've seen them. They just haven't got the training. They do the sports and they may have a great time, but they haven't developed their physical capabilities very well. And you've seen the reverse on the single sports side as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's, that's a, probably a discussion for another day. But going back to the periodization side of things, the, the biggest thing is figure out your blocks of time when you're going to commit to training. And training blocks are really important, especially at the young ages. Reason being is you need dedicated time for improvement to to take over. And if we're scheduling tournaments every weekend, every second weekend, there isn't enough complete training time to really hone a skill, hone a strategy, hone a physical component that we want without the competitive pressures. Because most athletes, the moment competition starts, they just find a way to win, which is good. That's what we actually want. When you step on the tennis court, you always want to have that mindset of, I'm going to do whatever it takes to be competitive today and give myself the best chance of winning. Not saying you're going to win all the time, but you're going to compete like like that. So the people, and that's one of the problems sometimes when people say, well, we're working for the long term and for development. That's true. You want to make sure you are, but you don't want to give athletes an out saying, hey, it's okay if you lose today. That's that's not the purpose of competition. If it's okay for them to lose today, don't play the tournament. It's much better to have that as a training time rather than put them in an event 
where you're giving them an out and they're feeling like, well, it's not that important. They shouldn't compete. I mean, you watch the best players in the world. They'll play a low-level event. They'll play a slam. And the best ones are fully committed every time they step on the court. Some of the lower-level pros do have these ups and downs where they can't play as well in those lower-level events. And part of that, a lot of the time, is potentially how they were brought up and prioritizing some events and very much deprioritizing others. So we have to be a little careful with scheduling from that standpoint. But the training blocks are real important because physiologically, we know it takes a good four to six weeks to get major adaptations physically in a lot of variables. So at the younger ages, always try to have about four blocks of time throughout the year that you get four to six weeks without tournaments that you can focus in on training. And that's really, really important to try to do. Um, the pros usually try to get two. They get their preseason. Uh, and then they try to sneak in one at some other time. Many of them then will have two-week training blocks just because of the schedule. It's very hard to get more than two weeks at a time. But again, it's the same concept, trying to get these training blocks when you can really hone in on certain variables that can make you better. So that's one aspect. Have your training block time figured out. Then also figure out where your tournaments are. And everyone has levels of tournaments that mean more than others. We understand that. So that's important to recognize. But every time they step on court, we still want them competing at their best level. And you work your way back from sort of the most important tournaments, from you know whether the level is the highest or it's a national championship or it's a qualifier to get into a big tournament. Whatever it is, everyone has sort of those priority events. And they need to be highlighted on the schedule and you need to sort of work your way around your schedule to make sure that you're not going into those events with too much training to, to the point where you're fatigued going into those tournaments. And that's really very important to make sure that we unload a little bit the week before those events. The problem is too many times people consider every tournament a priority one event, which means that they're taking the day off before the tournament. They're taking the day off after the tournament. And a lot of the time, if you do that every tournament you play, you only train a couple of days a week. And the problem with that is you actually sometimes get sore and you get more problems because you're going into these high spurts of high volume on those training days. And then you're sort of recovering or resting for three or four days and doing a lot less volume. And that actually increases risk of injury. So we know that the risk factors for injury a lot of the time are spikes in volume. And we want to try very hard to not get major spikes in volume by scheduling and periodizing appropriately. So, for example, if somebody is, you know, let's say they mark um, national clay courts, national hard courts, and winter nationals as their three priority one events in the year, how how many tournaments would they play leading up to that? Where would the training block fit in leading up to that? And then where is the recovery period? I mean, let's, let's talk real specific. No, great question. So a lot of it has to do with the level of the player. Unfortunately, too many players play at a level above their true level, meaning that if you're going into tournaments and losing first and second round, you know, consistently, you're probably playing at the wrong level. And I understand that people want to play the highest level possible, 
But the goal is not to play 30 tournaments. That's not the goal. The goal is to play 15 to 20 and do really well in 10 of those, you know, 10, 12 of those. That is an ideal schedule. And how to accomplish that is the challenge for many people because, you know, they're all, the, the folks that are on the cusp of the hard ones totally understand you've got to play a few more events to get your ranking up to, to get into those events. But unfortunately, a lot of players play way above the level they should be, which makes scheduling a problem because they keep losing. So if you keep losing early in tournaments, you don't get many points. You know, the way mm-hmm. points are broken down, making quarters, semis, finals are significantly better, even at a lower level than losing first round many times or second round. So you have to really be smart about that. Not enough people do a good job on that. So that's important to recognize. But going back to specifically, if you're talking clays and hard courts, because of the summer is your big tournament season for most people, you know, you're going to have usually, you know, a pretty good training block, you know, about two months before that, you know, where you can put in a lot of good work and then you're going to try to maintain and keep building a little bit a couple of weeks before uh, clay courts. Then you're going to sort of unload the week before clay court, take it easy a lot of the time, depending there's two schools of thought on do you play a tournament immediately before a big event or do you sort of train and, and rest up a little bit? So we definitely want match play, but most people, if they're planning on going deep in a tournament, you don't want to play a big event the week before many times, because especially in the summer when it's hot, it's pretty fatiguing playing, going, winning four or five matches in a tournament the week before and then two days later, having then go and win six, seven, eight matches, whatever it may be, the following week. So we have to be really careful on the scheduling the week before. That doesn't mean you don't want matches. Though. We may play you know, 15 sets that week before, but it's in a bit more controlled environment. You may play two sets you know, in the morning, two sets in the afternoon, so you give yourself a little recovery time. Uh, it's a little bit interesting on how you may schedule. So... That's if you're truly about development. The challenge for many people is there's a lot of people that do points chase and do just play as much as they can to try to get the ranking up as high as possible, um, which in the old system made some sense. Now, though, with UTR becoming more and more prevalent in uh, college coaching and recruiting and things like that, that's not as beneficial. It's better to have good wins, make sure that you're playing an appropriate schedule because that'll be rewarded. If, if you're a good player, you'll get rewarded. And that's an important aspect with scheduling as well. Great. Okay. That, that's very helpful. Um, because I do think there's a lot of confusion over, you know, you're, you're ramping up for this big event. And what should you be doing two weeks ahead, one week ahead? You know, how do you act, acclimatize to the heat and humidity if you're going to play clay courts? You know, how do you get ready for that if you're not outplaying but if you're outplaying how do you make sure you don't use up all your energy store so there's nothing left by round one of clays i mean it's just it's a constant battle isn't it no and it's and it's you know clay courts for example is everywhere wherever it is whatever level we're talking about it's hot it's hot and humid just about every location that it that it that it's in and you've got to acclimate if you're a northern person and it's 15 20 degrees cooler from where you're coming from and the humidity is not there or if you're coming from the west coast 
you better get there four or five days in advance. If you get there a couple of days early, it's not enough. It's a big shock to most people and they have to be smart about that. Ideally, I always recommend if you can do it, get to the location as early as you can that week before, set up some good matches, find an academy, find players in the area, train there, really put in a good, pretty hard week of training that you can play a good number of matches. Because at that point, the fine tuning hopefully is done. We're not making technical big adjustments. We're not doing anything major. We're like, okay, how do I strategize better? How do I keep control of my nerves better? How do I, you know, make sure my surf percentage is where it needs to be? How I'm getting ready to compete and to, to play matches and to find ways to win in against a lot of adversity. Because every tournament you play in, there's points in every match that adversity shows up. And the players that are most well-prepared are the ones that usually do the best. Right. Are those mental and, and I guess, tact- well, tactical and mental sometimes get mixed up, I think, because, you know, the mental side of things, we think of staying calm and the between-point rituals, but those are also tactical kind of pieces as well, maybe? I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, 100% agree. I mean, we break it down that um, tactical and mental are two distinct areas. Like a lot of things, things are related. Um, But from a tactical standpoint, that's your strategy. That's, do you know how to play the game? Do you know where to hit the ball? Do you know how to analyze your opponent effectively so that you can put the ball where it's uncomfortable for them and it's more comfortable for you? That's making the right decisions at the right times is tactical. The mental piece feeds into that because if you know what to do in practice and don't do it in a match, meaning that you blank out, you're not thinking straight, you're, you're frustrated and you hit the wrong shot at the wrong time, you have to determine, does the athlete not know that that was the wrong shot? Then it's a tactical mistake. Then they just didn't know. They, they hit a ball that they shouldn't have hit, something like that. That's tactical. A mental mistake is, I knew what the right shot was. I chose the wrong option. That was just, you know, being a bonehead and picking the wrong <laughs> decision. And that happens all the time. And that's, sure. a, that's a mental mistake more so than a tactical mistake. And some people, like you said, they're not sure, okay, how do those interrelate or connect? And they are related. There's no doubt about it. But knowing and not doing is typically a mental mistake. Not knowing is a tactical mistake. You just picked the wrong shot. You just didn't know that there was a better option then, a safer option. Percentage-wise, it was better. The odds weren't in your favor to win most of the points that way, that type of thing. Got it. Got it. And so the, the mental side of things that, that training also occurs during a training block, right? I mean, every day, I mean, probably I spend more time on the mental side of training than just about everything else. And it's not, it's not a um, planned or prioritized area to the athlete, the athlete, you know, I'm not, Uh, you know, a mental coach. It's not what they come to see me for, but everything I do has a huge mental component around it because you're pushing through limits. You're trying to get athletes to understand right and wrong in meaning that percentage wise, what's a better option? What's going to give you the best chance of success when things aren't going well? What are some strategies that you're implementing to utilize? Uh, And all the great coaches 
have a really good skill set of leading and managing the athlete. Leading and managing is what a coach does, and those are two different things. Leading is inspiring, setting a vision, setting a stage of what the athlete should be doing, potentially can do. Managing is making sure the X's and O's are done right so that you can achieve your original intention. And some coaches have a great at leading. Hey, set the stage, plan it out. They're really bad at managing it, meaning they don't have good attention to detail. They're not taking care of the little pieces that actually make the athlete achieve success. Other people are really good at details, but they don't have a good overall plan of what those details are trying to accomplish. And the best ones do both. Right. And as the parent and the payer, it's really important that you understand where your coaches skills are. And if they are lacking in one of those areas, is there somebody that can come in and help or is the coach willing to learn? And if the answer is no, then, you know, maybe it's time to look at a different coaching situation. Yeah. I mean, the the biggest challenge you see in, in junior tennis is, you know, not understanding the bigger vision and not having the right plan in place because there's a lot of great coaches out there. I work with them every day and they're passionate, they're dedicated, they're knowledgeable, um, but they've all got weaknesses. All of us have areas that we're not strong in. And the best coaches are the ones that are searching out assistance in those areas. So that's a lot of the work I do is I basically, I, I work from word of mouth. I work with coaches I, I know, coaches I like, they reach out, we talk through scenarios, we try to map plans out and they implement nor- normally. And, you know, that's, important because if you're trying to develop good players and we're talking more high performance level players you have to have a team around you i mean every good coach has a team around them you know i have a team around me of experts that i go to when we have see different things that we didn't know we don't have the answer for we know we see a problem but we need another expert to help us get the answers and the best coaches do that and that's such an important aspect of you know, making sure that you're doing everything for the benefit of the athlete. And then the challenge for a lot of parents is they're sometimes a little too quick to to sort of point blame outside of the athlete. And parents have to be smart about that as well, that, hey, a lot of the time, the athlete's just not doing the right things. It's no one else's fault except the athlete. And we have to be very clear on that as well, that the worst thing you can do is move coaches if the problem is the athlete's not listening, not understanding, not making change. And the question then is why? Are they not listening because they don't believe or trust the coach? That's, that's a big problem. Then that there is a reason to leave. If the athlete's not listening because the athlete's not ready to listen, and we see that at the highest levels. The athletes two years earlier weren't listening to, the, to some instruction or information that would have helped them. And then two years later, they're ready to listen they make the adjustment and they skyrocket and they make great improvement. So we have to be clear on normally, you know, a, a saying I always use a lot, you know, for, you know, for every story, there's always two sides. It doesn't matter how thin the pancake is, there's always two sides to it. And we have to be smart about looking at that effectively and not always blaming the external person, the coach, the, the outsider, Many times the athlete just needs to look in the mirror a little bit and ask themselves, am I really doing the right things for the best development of my tennis? 
Uh, absolutely. And if the answer is no, it could be a sign of burnout, right? Sure. They need a I break. A hundred percent. I mean, most of the problems that we see is they're not overtrained. Very few junior tennis players are truly overtrained. There's the occasional one that may be, but in the years that I've been doing this, going to a lot of places around the country, very rarely do I see an athlete who is truly physically overtrained. I've seen thousands that are mentally overtrained. They've, they've burnt out. They're frustrated with the sport. They, they're not enjoying practice. But it's not a physical issue predominantly. Predominantly is they don't like, like the environment. They don't understand the drills. They don't see improvement. There's, there's, the coach is maybe the wrong personality, meaning that the coach is too dictatorial for an athlete that wants someone who's a bit more passive and conversational or vice versa. Someone who's a little too passive and conversational and you know tries to really get them to know the athlete very well. Some players are much more, hey, I'm here to work. I just want you to tell me what to do and make sure you push me to achieve that. So, you know, there's, there's the right fit and the wrong fit. And that's a big part of this. And it's important to analyze it as effectively as possible. Yeah. When we're talking about periodization, though, is there a place in the annual schedule for 100% shutdown tennis so that the kid has a full-on break from training on the court, off the court, competing, etc.? So that's one of those questions that it's a little different for every person. I wouldn't make a blanket statement that, yes, everyone should take three months off a year. A lot of people should. I would probably guess 80 to 90% probably should. Um, it'll be valuable for them for a number of reasons. But there's that 20, 30% or so of folks that they just love the sport. They want to play. But you've got to structure it where they may not play tournaments for two months or three months. They may just train. They may only train three or four days a week. They may do other things, lighten up the load, things like that. So the, the problem is if you play year-round, you better be doing a lot of off-court training to make sure that your body is not negatively adapting and getting tight in the wrong areas because playing tennis is physically causes a lot of adaptation. Some of them are good, you know, makes you play better tennis, but physically you start tightening up in certain areas. You start, you know, getting more restricted. You start getting more one-sided development. So all of those need to be effectively corrected if you're playing on a very extensive year-round schedule. One of the benefits to taking three months off or something along those lines is that the body sort of has a little bit of time to readjust itself by doing other sports, other movements, things like that. So um, the blanket statements where everyone should take three months off, that's not fair and not appropriate and everyone's different. So we have to be a little careful. But in general, it makes sense to take some period of time. Could be six weeks, could be three months um, based on the athlete, based on what their enjoyment factors are. Uh, the good thing about northern states is typically you can't get as much court time in the winter, so you are automatically unloaded. Um, in the southern states, you can pretty much play year-round at the same schedule, um, so we have to be a little more careful there. Uh, so, you know, it's one of those things where rest is important. It doesn't always need to be in a huge chunk of time. Having weeks off throughout the year can be really valuable. Uh, and then also... 
the biggest thing that we want to do is we want to avoid those three-month, four-month, six-month injury time-offs that a lot of junior players go through. The last thing we want to do is have a forced rest. And the body tells us. I mean, that's pretty much the body telling you, hey, we're overdoing it. I'm going to force you to rest. You've got a stress fracture. You've got a, you've got a um, you know, uh, elbow issue. You've got a knee issue. I'm forcing you to take weeks off. So it's always better in my mind to try to ahead of time reduce volume so that that doesn't happen. We have a, usually a rule of thumb that if you get any type of joint-related pain as you're growing, automatically reduce your volume by 30%. No, sort of no questions asked. You know, it's one of those things that we reduce volume at the first sign of joint-related pain. You know, then if it doesn't get any better, then it's important that you reduce volume more, but then it definitely means you better see someone because mm-hmm. if 30% reduction doesn't remove that joint-related pain, then it's probably not a volume issue. It's likely a biomechanics issue with your strokes uh, or you've got something structural that's happening that probably needs an expert to evaluate. Interesting. I, yeah, that's a really good um, piece of advice there, the joint-related pain and starting with a reduction in volume. I'm, and I, I wish I had known that <laughs> when, my, when my son was coming up. I um, That's really good advice. So, Mark, we have about five minutes left, and I want to make sure to give you the time to say everything you want to say. I, I'd love for you to talk a little bit uh, about the testing you do and the data collection that you do and how people can take advantage of your expertise and, and your facilities. Yeah. So, I mean, we have a, a, a setup here where we work with some of the best athletes in the world across sports, baseball, soccer, tennis, had a figure skater uh, in actually this week. So we do pretty advanced assessments. Uh, it's not for everyone. Um, we don't really reach the masses. We reach individuals that are looking to truly excel. So most of our assessments are a whole day, sometimes two days, and it's very structured based on the needs of the athlete and who they've got as part of their team. Uh, so that's sort of what we do in-house at the Institute. Uh, but again, people can go to the website to check out a little bit more about what we do, covaxinstitute.com. Uh, we also do courses for coaches and athletes and parents that try to help educate around some of these areas. So we have a fitness testing combine for tennis that uh, is 14 tests that we know are very important for tennis athletes. It goes through coordination to speed, to strength, to uh, power, to tennis-specific endurance. And this is something that you know coaches around the country are doing, implementing at academies. It's a protocol that is standardized. We know the normative data, which means we can tell where a 14-year-old is compared to their peers, where they need to be if they want to play at the collegiate level, potentially even when, where they need to be if they want to play professionally in all these different physical variables. We know that you know, tennis is, requires multiple skills. Physical is only one piece of it. But we do also know that if you're not at a certain physical level, it's really hard now to make it at the collegiate level and it's impossible to make it at the professional level if you don't have the base level of physical skills in these areas. So we do a lot of different things um, across uh, different environments, work with a lot of coaches around the country, try to help them as much as we can. So, yeah, if anyone wants to get in touch with us, uh, our institute is covaxinstitute.com. 
Uh, personally, if you want to go on social media, I'm on there quite a bit. It's MCOVACS PhD. Uh, feel free to ask questions on Twitter, on Facebook, uh, on Instagram. Uh, happy to c- converse with different folks. And, you know, again, the goal is try to make your decisions based on as much evidence as possible. Uh, be smart about it, you know, and listen to the right people as well. The reason there are experts out there is because they've done it for a long time. They have not only practical expertise over decades, but they actually have some research or evidence-based practice information that they base a lot of their decisions on. Well, that's great advice. And thank you so much for making yourself available to all of us at Parenting Aces. I really appreciate that. And um, just so my audience knows, I, I see Mark periodically throughout the year. We live in the same city, but, but our paths don't cross that often here in Atlanta, but we, we wind up running into each other at strange places. So that's always fun. And Mark is always responsive when I reach out to him with questions. So to the audience, if you don't feel comfortable, you know, tweeting at Mark, Directly, you can always send me your questions and I will be happy to forward them on. And I promise you, he will respond with something wise and wonderful. So, Mark, thank you again for taking time out of your crazy busy life to do the podcast again. And hopefully we won't wait so many years before doing another one. But uh, I always love speaking with you and I always learn so much from you. No, thanks so much for having me on. And, you know, for the folks that are around on, on March 9th, we're doing an in-person tennis fitness combine. It may be appropriate for it's athletes age 12 to 18 in Atlanta. If you go to our uh, website, you can sort of see more information there. And we do all the testing. Uh, it takes about three hours from start to finish. And we'll give everyone a report about where their strengths are, where their opportunities are, what to work on things like that. So this is something we try to do a couple times a year to try to give, you know, uh, information to players between 12 and 18. Great. That's awesome. We'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. So thank you so much. And to my audience, thanks so much for tuning in to the Parenting Aces podcast. We'll catch you next time. I'm Lisa Stone, and you've been listening to the Parenting Aces podcast. For tennis parents, by a tennis parent. If you like what you've heard, I hope you'll share the podcast with your tennis community. For all the information you need to navigate the junior and college tennis journey, be sure to check out parentingaces.com.